As you're taking your seats, I'm going to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Periodically through the year, our kids will come home from school and uh, present to us a progress report. And uh, most of the time, that's a really good thing, and every once in a while, it's not so good. Everybody knows that a progress report means it's time for a little bit of a checkup. It's time to evaluate. It's time to see how we're doing in terms of reaching our goals and striving forward to grow. It's also an opportunity to evaluate our weaknesses, our deficiencies, and to look at what we might be able to do better what we can begin to focus more on and really get after in a really intentional way. And like every good parent, we trust that we are trying to help our kids progress and move forward and grow in a healthy way. Acts 10, in many ways, is going to function for us this morning kind of like a progress report, and I mean that in two different ways. One, it's an opportunity for us to evaluate Uh, at this point in the history of the church, how the church is actually doing. How are they doing in terms of reaching their goal and and fulfilling the mission that Jesus had given them? We know that the mission was given in the very first chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The call was to go out. It was a call to move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It was an important call, it was a commissioning, and it became the mandate for the church of Jesus Christ. In Acts 10, interestingly, we're probably around 10 years into the life of the first church, the early church. And as we're looking at that mission statement in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I want us to look at this chapter and see how, how is the church doing and what is God wanting to tell the church in terms of how they need to continue to make progress. The mission statement, or excuse me, the overarching ministry theme for our year is sent. It's right there behind me on the banners. The promise, power, and notice this word, the progress of the gospel. And as we've marched this far through the book of Acts, we've broken this series theme down into some bite-sized mini-themes, and this morning we're launching our last uh, mini-series in the book of Acts before we take a break for the summer and then pick it up again next year. And I want to encourage you, the ministry theme that we're focusing on right now, or the the mini-theme is this, get out, the progress is here. And there is a sense in which this chapter we see the very heart of God calling the church to expand their vision for the church and press on towards the vision that God has for the church. And it's an opportunity for us as a local church here and now at this time, at this moment in history, to stop and evaluate how are we doing as a church on this mission? How are you doing? How am I doing individually on this mission that God has given to us? Is the gospel going forth? Are people being saved? How can we grow in this? How can we do better at this? There's a major breakthrough about to take place in this chapter. We looked at it a little bit last week as God was preparing Peter to launch the gospel forward and to break down the barriers between the Jew and the Gentile. 
God is going to go after the Gentiles who were formerly excluded. Now they are included in Jesus Christ. So the gospel here we see needs to go further. It needs to break through significant barriers. And I want to suggest to you that even in our lives today, the very same truths, the principles exist. There are barriers that prevent the gospel from moving forward in our church and in our lives. And God wants to crush these barriers. He wants to rip these walls and these obstacles down because he wants to see his gospel moving forward forward in power the way he designed it to, making progress. This is a massive, massive moment in the history of the church and the history of the world in Acts chapter 10. And as we study historical passages, I just want to remind you, we've talked about this before, but it's helpful to come back to some of these principles. We have to be very careful when we're looking at a narrative passage. This is a history of what has taken place. It's not always telling us exactly what to do. And so as we study narrative passages, as we study history, we need to be careful and remind ourselves that we can't apply everything directly one-to-one. God doesn't work in exactly the same ways all the time. This is a very unique, a very specific, a very special moment in history that is not to be repeated. And yet what we find is this. That although there is a singular focus in this passage that's very unique, we find important principles that we can grab from here and apply to our current context. And we can see these principles leaping off the page as we study through the book of Acts, and we've been drawing them out, and I trust that God has been encouraging your heart and using them to mold and shape you. You see, God is pressing in this chapter, Peter, to get out into the world with the message of Jesus Christ, and I believe in the same way, with the same principle, he's pressing the church today to get out to get out and to see that the gospel needs to make more and more progress. How? How How are we to get out? First, I want you to see this in the text. First, if we're going to get out with the gospel, we need to get out of the way. We need to get out of the way. Let's read the first section here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says this, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known of the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Sometimes we need to get out of the way so we can see what God is actually doing. Sometimes the greatest obstacle to our effectiveness uh, to seeing the gospel advance is actually us. Our limited scope, our limited perspective, our limited understanding of what God is doing and what God is capable of doing. We get so caught up sometimes in our own little world, we forget that there is a God who is busy ruling the world. Here we see Two specific men, Peter and Cornelius. We are going to see two unique visions, but what we will ultimately see is one grand plan that God is sovereignly working. 
God prepares two men so that the plan of salvation can be driven forward and make massive progress. We're introduced first to this man named Cornelius in verse 1. You'll notice that we have a little bit of detail about who he is. He's a centurion, which means he's a, a soldier. He's part of the Italian cohort. Now, he's a military leader. Really what he is is a non-commissioned officer who has worked his way up through the ranks to the status of a centurion. The reality is he probably oversees between, uh, estimates say between at least 100, but potentially up to 600 men underneath of his command. This isn't the first time, by the way, we're introduced to a centurion in Scripture. Have you ever noticed that? The Scriptures often refer to centurions, and especially in the Gospels, uh, Jesus actually has a, a really significant conversation with a centurion, but it's a fascinating study to do. We don't have the time to do it right now, but just suffice it to say that whenever a centurion is mentioned in the Scriptures, it's usually very favorably, very positively. It's really interesting. I think there are some reasons for that because I think that, that there is some emphasis on what the centurion does and who he is and what he understands that makes him particularly open to understanding some of the truths of the gospel. Do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 8 where a centurion approaches Jesus and he approaches him because he has a servant who's been paralyzed and he's in immense suffering? And in Matthew chapter 8, he comes to Jesus, and he, he essentially, he calls Jesus to come. He's like, would you heal my servant? And, and, he, and, he, and he says to him, he said, you don't even have to come. I'm paraphrasing here. He said, you don't even have to come. You just need to say the words, and I know, I know whatever you command, it will be done. And he, he explains this, that he understands what it is to be a man in authority, to have authority, and to see people submit to his authority. And he looks at Jesus, and he understands that Jesus has a greater degree of authority than he could ever hope to possess. There's something I think about this man as well that God has used. And I want you to see this in this first section especially, but we're going to see it throughout, that God is divinely preparing this man for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is sovereignly, supernaturally preparing this man in such a powerful way to be open to the gospel and to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his job has helped to prepare him. It's been no mistake. This man understands authority. He understands submission and he understands obedience. These things are key for salvation. And he's described in verse 2. Look at he's he's a unique man. He's even unique amongst centurions. He's a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually. This is a man of faith. This is a man who is genuinely seeking, searching, striving to know God, to love God, to live for God. But he only has a certain degree of knowledge a limited amount of light and understanding, but he's living up to the light that he has. He's called in this text a God-fearer. This is a term that comes up throughout the New Testament. And it's, it's a term that describes somebody who's not quite a convert to Judaism, 
but he's not kind of resistant and far off from Judaism. He's kind of an in-between spot. He's a God-fearer, which means this, that he, he hasn't fully given himself to the Jewish faith, and that would require him submitting to everything under the law, including circumcision, essentially becoming a Jew and being accepted as a Jew in the Jewish faith. He's not quite there, but he's learned the Jewish faith. He's understood the Jewish truth so much so that he believes them with all of his heart, He would have been appreciated and respected in many ways by the Jewish, but he wouldn't have been seen as being quite accepted yet because he hadn't gone all the way. This man has a heart that is searching for God. Now, we know, interestingly, when you think about that, he's searching for God, he's seeking for God, and yet we know this. We know what Scripture teaches, don't we? I mean, just look at Romans chapter 3, and you'll see very clearly that there are none who seek after God. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God, and yet we have here an example of a man who appears to be seeking God. How do we make sense of this? The very nature of mankind because of sin is to rebel against God, not to seek God. In fact, they're opposites. What humanity does because of its sinful nature is resist God, flee from God, not run to God. And yet, at the very same time, we know from Scripture, and especially Romans chapter 2, that there is a natural longing in every human heart, a conscience that bears witness to the reality of God. The knowledge of God is innate in every human being. It's embedded into the very DNA of humanity. And yet, the human heart, though it longs for God, it seeks to find its fulfillment to that longing in God's substitutes. The Bible refers to these as idols. We run to idols, and John Calvin says that the heart is an idol-making factory. It's just continually pumping out idols, things that mimic a a God in our lives, things that we bow to, that we worship, at least metaphorically speaking. There are things that we love in this world. There are things that we run to that we believe are going to satisfy us, but we typically, usually, generally find out that they ultimately are are unsatisfying. They offer a degree of temporal satisfaction, but there is no total, complete fulfillment that they can provide. It's kind of sad when you think of it. Many people live in this place of frustration, thinking they're getting the real thing, only to find out that it's some kind of substitute. It's like going to Taco Bell, right? And you're like, wow, I'm going to get a good, meaty, beefy burrito, I don't know if anybody actually goes to Taco Bell. I'll pray for you if you do. (laughs) You know, the sign says 100% beef, and you bite into it, and you're like, wow, it kind of tastes like beef. And then you look at the fine print, and it says 100% beef substitute. Tastes just like the real thing. Some of you are getting real scared now, and you're never going back. We're so easily fooled. Our hearts are so easily fooled by things that try to mimic a God but are really just poor substitutes, unsatisfying. St. Augustine said these words, he said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. The human heart cannot on its own, here's the key word here, the human heart cannot on its own seek God. 
It is impossible for the sinful human heart to actually seek after God. The human heart, spiritually speaking, is dead. It has no spiritual pulse. It cannot beat after its creator. It longs for its creator, but it cannot get to its creator. It cannot know its creator. It cannot even seek its creator without God's divine intervention. And in right here, in this passage, what we're going to see is this God chooses this man. You have to see that. It's so beautiful. God chooses this man, Cornelius, and he chooses to intervene in his life, and he chooses to expose him to the gospel. But before that, he chose to give him to the desires of his heart to seek after and long after God. Jesus, we saw this as all the way through John, the idea that no man seeks after God, but God must come after us. In John 6:44, let me just remind you of a couple verses. Look at this. No one can come to me. These are the, this is the lips of Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, God must begin the process of initiation. He must send his own son. This is all God. And he must draw people to himself. I love John 10, 16, and it's so applicable to our passage this morning. Jesus says this, you know, you know that great, the good shepherd passage, and Jesus is the good shepherd. He says this in John 10, 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You see what he's saying there? I already have these other sheep. And when I call them, when I call them, they will come. They will hear my voice. They will recognize my voice. And they will come to me. And I love this picture here because who is that other flock that Jesus has? It's the Gentiles. It's the Gentiles. Ephesians tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, it's important to realize that this is never against the volition of man. And we'll see here that happening, that there is a response, and that this is the longing of this man's heart, and the way these two things fit together is a mystery, and you need to understand that and embrace that. There is tension that we live in here. There is human responsibility, but there is divine sovereignty, and the two of them are incredibly difficult to figure out. They don't really work that well in my mind, but they work perfectly in the mind of God. This is a man who genuinely desired to know, love, and worship God. And the Holy Spirit was at work in his life in what we would call an external way. You say, how does God work to change our desires and give us the desires after him? Well, I don't know all of the ways, but I know this. In an external way, God has a way of providentially orchestrating the events of our lives. Changing things so that we end up finding our way to him. And it is no accident he has a way of making us dissatisfied with the things of this world and the things of this life, of breaking us and breaking our longing for this world. And in this man's life, he probably had to make him dissatisfied with the paganism that was rampant around him. All of the other false gods. And they had to bring him into contact with a better way so that he could learn about the God of Israel. It is certainly the case that Cornelius had been prepared for by God for what Peter was being sent to Caesarea to tell him. Like all of us at one time, this man had lived for himself. Maybe that's even you this morning. 
Maybe life had left him broken. Maybe life had left him confused. He'd seen the inadequacy of the world around him and the pursuits of the world and the pagan gods that everybody was running to. He probably pursued the world. He pursued the pleasures, the power, the prestige of the world. Maybe he pursued the praise of the world, and maybe you have too. Maybe you've lived that kind of a life. Maybe you've lived for the pleasures of this world and the pleasures of your sin. Maybe you have found yourself trapped in drugs or sex or entertainment or power. Maybe people have consumed your life and become your idols. Maybe you long desperately for the praise of others. And maybe like this man, you too have found it hopeless. So often, I believe probably every time, the greatest obstacle to you knowing God is you. Whether you're an unbeliever or whether you're a believer, the greatest obstacle to you knowing God more deeper truly is you. Everyone needs their greatest obstacle to be destroyed and removed. We need our eyes to be taken off ourselves. And this man here has been prepared by God. He has been moved out of the way so that he can see clearly the God of this universe. Everyone needs their hearts prepared by God if they're going to receive the gospel and be changed by God. God intervenes in a more direct way, doesn't he here? Certainly through the circumstances of this man's life, but all of a sudden this man is met with a vision. It says that about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God. And like most people do when they see an angel, they fall down in terror before them. And this sweet statement that God has been looking at this man, his heart has been uh, looking upon this man. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God has seen them and he has seen in this man a heart that longs for God, truly longs for God. And he calls him to action. He calls him to send some men and go find this man named Peter. He tells him exactly where to go, where he'll find him, right down to the very last detail. God is in control of all of this. Meanwhile, what we need to see is that God is also preparing the messenger. He prepares the recipient, but he prepares the messenger. Look at verse 9. It says this, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter goes up onto the rooftop Faithful Peter, we've seen him before, and he's going up onto the rooftop to pray. And you need to know that there are set times of prayer in the, on the Jewish calendar, on the Jewish day, five specific times. But here what we see is Peter is going up at an irregular time. This is not a prescribed time of prayer for the Jew. This is an irregular time. And I think that just tells us this, that Peter's heart was always for the Lord. He just loved to spend time with the Lord. He loved to commune and fellowship with God. It didn't matter if it was the right prescribed time or not. He simply wanted to be with his Lord. I think that's maybe helpful as we just begin to think about how God is preparing Peter just to consider this principle. Maybe God uses people who are seeking him. 
God uses people who are seeking him. God uses people who want to spend time with him. God uses those kind of people regularly. You say, well, why? Why would you say that? Well, I think it's, it's true for Cornelius as well, by the way. Did you know that Cornelius is met by this vision in a time of personal worship with the Lord? And God meets us in a unique way, by the way, in prayer itself. Prayer, you see, prepares us to be used by God because it gets our hearts in tune with God. Prayer, here's a helpful statement that is not original to me, but I'm not sure who to attribute it to. Prayer is not bending God's will to ours. It is God bending our will to his. You see, so it's in prayer that so often God, while we are speaking to him, will find that he is actually speaking right directly to our hearts. He is changing us. He is changing the very desires of our hearts to line them up with the desires of his heart and the things that he loves, the things that he cares for, become, even in the very act of prayer, as we surrender and submit ourselves to him, the very things that we love, that we submit to, that we long for. Peter is hungry. It's interesting that while he's hungry, God gives him a vision of food. And as they're preparing the food for him, it says that Peter fell into this trance, and this is not a, a dream, this is not his imagination, this is a heightened state of consciousness that is in preparation for a vision from God. The vision is fascinating, especially if you're a Jew. He sees, notice this, notice where the vision is birthed from. It is birthed right from heaven itself. And God lets down this giant sheet, picture a tarp, if you will, with four corners, strings tied to them. And right from heaven, this tarp is being lowered. And on this tarp, there are all kinds of different animals. But you have to see here what kind of animals are there. On this great sheet, there were reptiles and birds of the air different kind of animals, and we see that there's clearly some animals on there that Peter uh, refuses to kill and eat. The Lord says to him, there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat, and Peter says in verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. All you have to do is read through the book of Leviticus to see that God had separated different kinds of animals out, and he'd said some were clean and some were unclean, and I'll spare you the details. There's a lot of animals there. Just read through Leviticus. Just take you no time. It's a lot of fun. And, and you'll see that there are all kinds of animals that the Jews were not allowed to eat because they were deemed unclean, defiled. And this is a very, very important truth as we were going to pull apart what's taking place here and why it's so significant. Now, Peter knows the dietary restrictions. Listen, he also, he also, as a Jew, knows what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, and Mark makes it very clear that Jesus had put aside the dietary laws, by the way, and, and, and Mark and Jesus had, had made it very clear that it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of his heart that makes him unclean. But you have to just picture for a Jew, a faithful Jew who'd lived his entire life abiding by these religious regulations, the thought of eating something unclean, something even historically that they were taught, don't, don't ever do this, you'll, you'll, you'll be condemned if you do this, you'll be judged if you do this, you'll be punished if you do this. This is a hard obstacle and barrier for this man to overcome. 
And so he, he tells the Lord, no, Lord, I, I cannot do this. Now, it's really interesting, verse 14. I think that's fascinating, right? While the Lord was on the earth, while Jesus Christ was on the earth, Peter made a career out of rebuking Jesus. And right now he sees fit to try and do it again. We mentioned last week one of Peter's most humiliating mistakes, and let me just remind you of it, Matthew 16. You don't have to turn there, just listen as I read it. It says this, From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I, I figured um, using the phrase, get out of the way, was much softer than saying, get behind me, Satan. But do you see the point? The point, the point that Jesus is reinforcing here is this, Peter, you're concerned about your will, not mine. You're the problem, Peter. And, and you need to get yourself out of the way, get your will, get your pursuit out of the way. And you need to get in tune with what I'm doing. You need to hear me, and you need to follow me, and you need to pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. You must not get in the way of what I am doing. And if you want to be of any use to me, you've got to get out of the way of yourself. Sometimes we believe we know better than God, don't we? We kind of mock Peter, and we look at Peter, and we say, how could you do this, Peter? And yet, in our day-to-day -day lives, we do the very same things. Our will so often trumps his. Our pursuits trump his pursuits. Our desires trump his desires. And God is saying, would you just get out of the way? And I love this, this part as Peter is declaring his stance and he's holding firm to his ignorance. This verse, by the way, parents, I love this because I think you could just make this your family verse, put it right above your table at dinner time. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, What God has made clean, do not call common. I'm making my kids memorize that today. God is making a statement here. These things were formally considered unclean. They were formally common. They would defile you. But right now, that is no longer in effect. That law no longer applies because it's actually been fulfilled. And do you notice here that, this is amazing, this happened three times, and then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. I mean, can you just see Peter just stubbornly resisting? Lord, I can't do it. Peter, I'm telling you to do it. Lord, I can't do it. What's, Peter's got a thing with three times. Did you notice that? Three times. I guess three strikes and you're out. But I just, I think there's something to that. You, just see, you see God's patience with Peter there? Look, when God speaks once, is that enough? And why would God say it three times? 
I don't know all the reasons, but I just I figure one of the key reasons is this. God is so gracious towards us, isn't he? Isn't he so kind and patient towards us? Aren't we so stubborn and obstinate and thick-headed so often? And God in his grace just lovingly comes along and keeps on instructing us even though we refuse to do what he says, even when we resist, even when we think we know better, God comes alongside us again and he brings the truth to bear on our hearts. And he does that with Peter. And then I love this. In this vision, you've got to notice that the vision begins and it ends in heaven. This is a divine vision from God. And God is calling Peter to get out of the way. And, and, and we're going we're to get to the heart of more what this vision means as this passage unfolds. But secondly, notice this. If you can get out of the way, the next thing is this. Get out of your comfort zone. Once you're out of the way, that's crucial to being used by God more effectively. But now God, some, God will call us to get out of our comfort zones. And Peter here is absolutely astounded and confused by what's taking place. Notice what verse 17 says. It says, now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed at, as to what the vision um, that he had seen might mean, behold, men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. I mean, this is an amazing picture of the divine intervention and the amazing divine timing of God. I mean, did you think of this? As Peter, his vision has just kind of dissipated, it's gone, he's sitting there pondering the truth, and at that very moment, these men walk up and look for Peter, call out for Peter. And God had planned this and timed this so perfectly. At the exact moment it was supposed to happen, it did. I think that should give us some comfort that nothing in this world is outside of the control of God. God is everything in control. God has sent them, God has planned this whole thing and nothing is left to chance and the same thing is true in your life and mine. Have you ever had that experience? Where something just appears to be a coincidence? Maybe that person called you right when you needed a phone call. Maybe God brought somebody across your path right in the moment of need. God is up to something here and it's incredibly obvious to Peter and Peter began to see the ramifications for his vision. It begins to crystallize and be clarified in his own heart. In 19, verse 19, it says, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the man and he said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And then here's the most astounding part of this. So he invited them in to be his guests. Now, that sounds like it should be normal, right? In our context, I'm like, wow, what a, what a gracious, hospitable thing, but that would seem pretty normal. Of course, he would welcome them into his home, but this was so abnormal for a Jew to do to a Gentile. I mean, this is way outside of Peter's comfort zone, and God has been chipping away at his comfort zone, remember? God has been ripping down his prejudices, We've seen him already affirm the Samaritans, half Jewish, half Gentile, and, and God has used him to acknowledge they are part of the family of God. We've seen, by the way, he's been living for probably two to three years with Simon, who is a tanner. 
Now that doesn't mean much to us either, but a tanner is somebody who works with the dead skins of animals. It was a despised profession by the Jews. And the fact that Peter is living with this man is evidence of the fact that God is chipping away at his prejudices. He's chipping away at what this man would formerly never have embraced. You see, our usefulness in God's hand, it is essential that God chips away at our prejudices. Not only does he invite them into his home to be his guest, that means that they stayed over with him. Look at this. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Again, you've got to remember, there's so much ignorance right now in Cornelius' mind. He doesn't understand what's happening. He just knows he's met an angel from God. He's had a divine, supernatural encounter. And now this man who he's been told to go and get walks into his house, and he thinks he might be standing in the presence of a God himself, and he bows down and worships, and Peter looks at him and says, stand up, I'm just a man too. Don't, don't worship me, what are you doing, Cornelius? Get up! I'll tell you about the one you need to fall down and worship. Just give me a minute. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, here's, here's the key, look, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. It's not just bad, it's, it's not just kind of, you know, like, ah, I'm not sure this is going to be okay. It's unlawful. We can't do this. We're not allowed to do this. But the beauty of this verse is right here. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. I love that. Just to give you a bit of context here, listen, a strict Jew wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentile. He wouldn't go into the home of a Gentile or have him in his home. Scribal law said that the dwelling places of Gentiles are unclean. It was considered that the dust, by the way, or dirt of a Gentile country was defiled, so much so that if you went into a Gentile nation or country and then you walked back into Israel, it became a common phrase in the Bible. Guess what you had to do? Get the dust off your feet. Because even the dust, if it was brought into Israel, would have a defiling effect on the land. It would contaminate the land. You couldn't, as a faithful, strict Jew, drink milk that had been drawn from a cow by a Gentile. You couldn't eat with a Gentile. And by the way, if cooking utensils were bought from a Gentile or were made by a Gentile, they had to be purified with both fire and water before you could ever use them. I mean, to do what Peter is doing here is so radical, and he even lets them know that, right? You yourselves know. I mean, clearly, you're God-fearer. You know the Jewish law. You know what Jews believe. You know that what I'm doing right now is utterly unlawful. And this all goes back to the Jewish diet. It goes all the way back to that vision 
as it's crystallized in Peter's mind. You see, why did God make a distinction between a clean and unclean animals? Like, why would God even say there are some animals that you shouldn't eat and some animals that you should eat? Why did he give those commands to the Jewish people? And the simple answer is this, to distinguish them from all the nations of the world. Social occasions in the ancient world, much like today, but probably a lot more so then, always happened around feasts. Do you ever notice that when you read through the Old Testament? I mean, they had all these feast days and these long-lasting feasts, and there was these massive social occasions where you're doing life with one another, and the hospitality was a huge picture of fellowship and community and unity. And God gave the Jews very distinct dietary laws, here's why, listen, so that they couldn't get together socially with the Gentiles. You say, well, that sounds really harsh. Well, listen, the truth is, it was to protect them. See, God knew the wickedness of their hearts. God knew they were prone to wander. God knew they were prone to rebel against them, even though he had saved them, even though they had experienced his grace. Well, how we can relate to that, can't we? And as they went into the land of Canaan, here's the reality, they were at risk of getting intermingled with the Gentiles. And this so often happened in the history of the nation. And what happened, every time they got intermingled, every time they wanted to become like the other nations, guess what happened? They ended up wandering away from the true and living God and embracing all of these pagan deities and gods, right? God was no longer their primary focus, but the gods of the nations were. And so God looked at them and he said, I'm gonna make you a unique, peculiar, distinct people your diet is going to be different so that you know that your fellowship must be with one another and those who love the one true and living God. I don't want you wandering away from me. I don't want you acting like the people who don't know me. You are different. You are mine. You say, is there a scripture verse for this? I'm glad you asked. Yes, there is. Leviticus 20, verses 25 and 26, right on the screen behind me. Just listen to this. You shall therefore separate the clean beasts from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean and you shall not make yourself detestable by beasts or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls. You see the tie-in with the vision there? Which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You, here's why, why, why? You shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. That was the idea. You're my possession and I don't want you running after those false gods. I'm jealous for you. The separation would protect them from the contamination that was beyond the food He was branching into the love of other gods. And now, what does this mean? For one, he's making clear that these Old Testament dietary laws are now uh, obsolete. They were designed to separate God, uh, God's people, from the world around them. But what's so unique is that as we branch into the church age, I mean, just listen, listen to these words. Just listen, this is so beautiful. Listen to what Paul says in in Ephesians chapter two. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. This is their condition. This is how the Gentiles lived 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, I or have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. Wow. That's what God is doing right here. God comes along and he says, I'm going to make one new man. And this line was so hard to cross, even for a Christian Jew. God had to do something supernatural to make it very clear. Now is the time. Now is the time to move forward and to make progress. Now the walls must come down. And Peter, you're going to be the one to unlock the door to the Gentile world. One commentator said this, It is simply not possible to fully accept someone with whom you are unwilling to share in the intimacy of table fellowship. The early church had to solve the problem of kosher food laws in order to launch a mission to the Gentiles. And I love this because it's a reminder for us, isn't it, that God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your social economic background. It doesn't matter what you've struggled with in your life of sin. God welcomes men and women, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Sinners of every stripe are welcome in the body of Christ. And one of the greatest barriers to gospel advancement, even in our time, is our sinful prejudice and partiality. That we can look at others and believe somehow they are not worthy of the gospel or somehow we are superior to them because of some distinction between us. The church is a place that must reflect gospel hospitality by welcoming everyone. This is the hospitality that God shows to us in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so the church must see the walls come crumbling down. There must be diversity, both in social and economic status, in ethnicity. I mean, any way you can think of distinctions, we need to see those things crumbling down, and we need to be reaching beyond our own little sphere that we're comfortable with. I think this is part of the issue here. I mean, we're really comfortable ministering to people who are just like us. And God is calling us to something much greater than that. He's calling us to look further than that. And he's calling us to believe in the gospel power in greater ways. In what way do you need to get out of your comfort zone? Just think about what Peter did here. He welcomed in these unbelievers to his home. And I I think there's some of us in here, we're afraid of having unbelievers in our home because we think they're going to contaminate us somehow, you know? Just, just by being around them, they're going to defile us. And though we wouldn't say it that way, that's oftentimes the way we act. And I want to encourage you as we look at this, there is a strong place for gospel hospitality in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we are unwilling to have the world into our homes, and if we're unwilling to go into the home of those who live in the world, listen, then the truth is that they may never hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they may never see the gospel of Jesus Christ lived through us. I mean, when was the last time you had an unbeliever into your home for a meal? Just think about that for a second. 
When was the last time you strategically, intentionally thought about inviting a neighbor into your house? When was the last time you did it? And if you're sitting here like, I can't remember the last time I did it, let me tell you, today, walk home. You, you need, tell me what to do. Give me something really practical. Walk out of here today, sit down with your spouse, and then commit to walking over to your neighbor's house and inviting them over for a meal this week. And show the love of Christ. Serve them, bless them. And if God provides the opportunity in the moment, share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And if you don't have it right in that moment, then it's okay. Have them back the next week. And build relationships so that people can hear and see the gospel. We need to get out of our comfort zones. Lastly, we need to get out in faith. We need to get out in faith. Verse 29, I love this. So when I was sent for, this is Peter talking, remember? I came without objection. I'm not sure that's exactly true, right? I guess he came when they asked him, but it took him a while to get to that part. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And this is my favorite part of this whole passage. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I wonder how often we are sent for by God and we refuse to go. I wonder how often God is calling us to go, calling us to do something, and we delay. Or maybe we begrudgingly do what we believe the Lord is calling us to do. We do it with, low, with no joy. We do it with no desire to honor Him. We do it simply out of duty. And when God calls us to do something, it may not come quite as clearly as it did to Peter and Cornelius. I mean, let's be honest, this is a pretty unique situation. But I'll tell you this, it requires no less faith. Peter had to step out in faith. He had to hear what God wanted him to do, and he had to obey God. He had to do exactly what God called him to do. He didn't know why God had called him at first. Did you notice that? A lot of times we make these conditions. Well, God, you tell me exactly what I need to do. You, you make sure that it's very clear and I'll do it. Peter had no clue how things would go. He didn't know why he was supposed to go. Not initially. It took some faith to just get going and believing that God was going to make it clear. And he did. He just knew he was supposed to go he knew he had to be obedient to what the Spirit of God was telling him to do. And I would just tell you this, that God has set his Spirit within us if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And God works mightily through the power of his Spirit and the power of his Word to lead, to direct, and to guide us. So I haven't heard God give me a word. Yes, you have. You've heard the Great Commission, right? Go! And listen, if... If you have been walking closely with God, I just want you to know this. God will lead and guide you by His Spirit. And sometimes His specific leads in very 
His Spirit leads in very specific ways through nudging us, through prompting us, through convicting us, through laying people on our hearts. I, I just, I, I, this is undeniable that God does this. Someone is on your heart and you just can't shake it. You think that's by accident? You think you came up with that? Don't you see that God in His grace and His kindness is working through His Spirit to lead and to guide you towards what He's calling you to do? You know you need to make a call. You know you need to reach out to that individual. I mean, I sat with somebody this week and it was so amazing because they told me a story of how they had an opportunity to share Christ with somebody that week, that week, and it was powerful. And, they, and he said to me, he looked at me with tears in his eyes, he said, Ian, he's like, I have been, he's like, since I've been saved, I have been thinking of this person every single week. He said, I, I, I have dreams about this person. I have dreams about sharing the gospel with this person. It's so embedded in my heart and I can't shake it. And by God's grace, he sovereignly lined up circumstances so that I crossed paths with this person and in a moment I saw God's kindness and his divine preparation and his plan and by his grace and through prayer God gave me power and boldness to speak the truth in love to this person this isn't an accident God does this all the time the, the reality is we just fail to see it or we refuse to believe it and God is calling us to live in faith that he will actually do this in our lives there are so many reasons why we don't go, isn't there? There are so many reasons why we don't do what God is calling us to do, even when we believe and we know that God is calling us to do it. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I'm too concerned about what people will think of me. I'm too scared they're going to respond in a negative way or they're not going to respond at all. I'm too unsure of how this is all supposed to go. You know, we like to have all of our ducks in a row because we like to be in control. And God likes to take our ducks and throw them in the garbage so that we know that he's in control. We are not responsible for the results. He is. We are responsible to go. We are saved by faith and we walk in faith and we must get out in faith. Cornelius had to respond in faith, didn't he? In such faith, such hope, such anticipation, he really believes he's about to be met by God and that he's about to be changed by God. I mean, he falls down to worship Peter and he makes, Peter makes him stand up. But he's, I love this. He sends out this massive Evite to everybody he knows and loves. Do you love that? I mean, he's so confident that he's about to hear from God. Do you realize that? He is so confident. He believes with all of his heart that God is about to speak to him, that God is about to meet with him. And he awaits the truth of God's salvation, and he does so with humility, with hope, but don't miss this. He does so with great faith. I love this. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God, he says. I, I know that God has orchestrated all of this to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And you know what the implication is there? So speak. Tell me what is it that I must know. Tell me what God has told you. Tell me what it is that will give me hope and life and salvation. Somebody please tell me. And there's a world of people out there who are desperately crying out, would somebody please tell me? In Romans 10, Paul writes these words. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Okay, now watch this. Verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Look, God is calling us to have beautiful feet and to carry the good news to a world that is waiting, that has been prepared by him to hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you need to believe that. You need to believe that there are people right now in your life that God has been so sovereignly behind the scenes preparing. God has been tilling the soil of their hearts. He's been working on them so that they might hear the gospel. But listen to this, from you. And God has been preparing you, whether you see it or not or believe it or not. God has been working on you and shaping you and convicting you and molding you so that you might be the vehicle through which people hear the good news of Jesus Christ. On Friday night, about 100 of us in here got together and we were, took part in that secret church where David Platt led us in the word and it was such a sweet time. And, and in that time, he, he was talking about world religions and, and he shared a lot of examples of how they ministered to different people in different places across the world. And he shared this one story of doing evangelism in India. And, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase this and just give you the sense of what he was saying. But he said that he was with a group of people and they were out in, in a busy kind of street and uh, intersection where they were going to go out into this park area and share the gospel. And there's hundreds and hundreds of Hindus uh, just kind of walking around. And he said the person who was leading them in the evangelistic effort said, look, look, I, I know this is kind of nerve-wracking and I know that you know, we've got to get out there. He's like, but you have to believe this. Got right out there, there are people that God has been sovereignly preparing to hear from you today. And he's been working through the circumstances of their life and, and, and today is the divine timing where they, now I don't know which ones they are and I don't know how God's got this all planned out, but you have to believe that out there, there are people who are waiting and who have been prepared by God to hear the message of Jesus Christ this day right now. He mentioned that, I found this particularly interesting, he mentioned that in some countries around the world where, the, where there's the, especially the church is being persecuted, that the moment somebody embraces Jesus Christ and follows Jesus Christ, they sit down and they're asked to write out a list of all their family and friends. This is, this is real. This happens. This is kind of, this is, this is real direct discipleship. And this is real serious. And then they say this. Now, circle the top five people who are least likely to kill you when you share Jesus Christ with them and start with them. Like, shame on us, right? I mean, go, go right down right now. Think of the list of your family and friends who don't know Jesus Christ. And you can't circle one name. Not one person who's gonna kill you for sharing Christ with them. And when was the last time we shared Christ with people? You know, there's, there's such desperate need. You see, this, this is so important because people are dying every minute and they're gonna spend eternity in hell apart from God. And God has sent us into the world. He sent us to go. We have the greatest news, and I feel, I feel rebuked by this too. We have the greatest news in the world. We have the only hope of life, and yet we keep it to ourselves and our self-centered, self-oriented culture and lifestyle, and we refuse to go and share with people. There is something to writing the names of those that God has put in our lives down that makes it real. And I'm going to commend that practice to you.
It makes it unavoidable when you, when you look at a name and you attach a face and you attach a family and you attach, listen, a life and you attach a soul and you attach a destiny. I want to ask you just to think of one name. I want to ask you to think of one name right now that you know would be on a shadow of a doubt and maybe God is convicting you in this moment that by the Spirit of God, He has revealed to you this is the person that I put in your life and, and that, listen, this is at least one person we can name many. But some of us, some of us, we've never taken the step of faith to go out and share Christ with anybody. And I want to suggest to you that today needs to be a different day for you. And I want to ask you to think of one name, one person, one soul that God has put in your life and he's placed a calling on your heart, maybe right now even in these last few seconds. Who is it that you believe God is calling you to start with? It's one name. Start with them. Start with them.